Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our conversation with Michaela Hempen. We are talking about how you assess animal welfare. In part one, Michaela introduced us to her day job. Michaela works for the European Food Safety Agency. That agency looks at anything related to food safety, including animal health and welfare. It provides risk assessments, which are used by the European Commission or by European member states to provide the scientific basis for legislation relating to food safety. The European Commission is involved in a long-term project that is going to revise all the farm animal welfare legislation. Michaela has been involved in this project, which means she has been on a steep learning curve to familiarize herself with the field of animal welfare. In part one, we talked about preference tests. How do you measure what animals want? We'll pick up here with a discussion of stress. And then Michaela is going to talk about an exciting opportunity for behavior analysts to become involved with this project and to help with the development of the scientific assessments of animal welfare. So how is this received by your colleagues who are, who have not uh, had the pleasure of learning how environment can change and influence behavior and who um, are, are they, because this makes, it's already, it was already complicated, but in a way when you're saying, well, now you're training the animals and you're, there's a new body, there's, you're, you're influencing the results, it's even more complicated. Are they happy to see these nuances or is it like, oh my God, <laughs> go away. Probably, probably the latter. <laughs> probably the latter. No, I think clarity. And, and, and we haven't even talked about a study right, of one. Right, yeah, no, that, that, that was probably the bigger hurdle. <laughs> No, I think clarity would be welcomed by everybody. I mean, if there was a design, you know, that would give better answers, everybody would love that because the discussions are so difficult. Another big topic, right, that I'm, you know, trying to solve in my head is is about stress. You know, what's stress? Because the argument is circular, Mm. you know, so an an animal is stressed because it's in a group, you know, we talked about the horses that aggress each other. So... The horse is in a group that he's, he's aggressed by the other horses. He can't, he's never, can't, can't eat, uh, can't sleep. So he's stressed. So why is he stressed? Because of the aggression. And why is, you know, why is the aggression? Because he's stressed, um, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't help anybody mm. because it's, it's, not, it's, not mm-hmm. well, it's not well defined what, what you're actually, you know, what's mm. the cause and uh, et cetera. So stress is a very complex one, also because stress yeah. also is stimulation. You know, a low level of stress in a in a in a good environment, in a healthy good environment, is beneficial. 
but too much stress chronically in a bad environment is very, very harmful. So that concept of stress that always comes up, we know, you know, we hear that all the time, right? So you have that, you have a certain behavior in a horse and then the explanation immediately is stress. It's like, yeah, that's not very helpful. Yeah, yeah and sometimes, you know, because we've all been in an arena where we're looking, well, I know I have, I'm looking at a horse, I see stress and someone else says, oh, he's so happy and lively and... You know, the way sometimes a lot of photos are taken of horses so that you have all this movement is by making a lot of noise and, you know, cracking the whips yeah. and and people like those photos. I know I hate those photos because all I can see is a stressed horse. Um, so there's a lot of subjectivity when you're assessing, you know, the movement of a horse. Is he stressed or is he just happy and perky yeah. and so what's the objective measure <laughs> that's the mm. problem and then we go yeah. okay uh, measure physiological parameters hormone levels heartbeat uh, glucose levels etc and then you try to infer from that but they don't tell you anything because we know that anticipation of a positive event also raises all of those yeah, because a horse that, you know, it's a cool morning, he's been inside all night, you let him out, he's going to be very active and, you know, and he may be very happy about it. So, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. No, stress is a very difficult one. Yeah, because yeah. it's what we go to, it's what we go to almost the first port of call, as it were, because what you're trying to reduce in welfare are conditions mm. which are stressful so let's look at yeah. stress yeah exactly and, and then they they have of course you know not only stress but as an ethologist you define each variation of stress so as an ethologist you have group stress isolation stress predator stress mm. whatever so they, they have for every little one a different name but basically it's it's all the same it's just obviously the context around it so what the context as such is is is, is part of it uh, but that just adds more labels it doesn't help in, in in any way and if you don't know the species it's it's even harder to assess stress no alex you you've told stories about people who would be dog trainers coming to your clinics and you know if they were starting to work with the horses they would get into very dangerous situation very quickly because they couldn't read the animal because they didn't know the language of the horses. And so they were, you know, you had to kind of take them out of there because it could have, you know, their safety was at risk and they didn't even realize it. And yet they were very good I'm dog trainers. I'm familiar with horses, but I'm not familiar with, to any degree, with cows or pigs. So how would I assess? Is this, a, is it, does this cow look stressed? I don't know. Um, mm. And birds, mm. you know, mm. if if you're if you mm. talk to somebody who who is a bird handler, they would they would read all kinds of things that I wouldn't even notice. Um, so, reading the body language is another huge piece. I remember, um, you know, we talked on one of our podcasts about when is an alligator stressed. <laughs> yes. 
you know, how do you read an alligator? Well, if you're in the enclosure with them, you better know how to do that. But it's hard when, when you don't know the species, you, you may not see the stress. I guess that makes writing regulation even more complicated because like you said before, if you're going to enforce the regulation, someone has to be able to read the situation according exactly. to the regulation. So stress is, you know, with all these different species, it's You have difficult. to go in into a, a farm and evaluate are these birds stressed or not. So they need measures. So what to measure those, um, there are suggested certain what's called an animal-based measure. So um, to assess whether there's negative welfare, as a veterinarian, you would see some of those. You have bruises, you know, that you have fractures, so you have, um, yeah, or a higher prevalence of disease. Wounds. Yeah, wounds, uh, disease. Farmers mm. uh, would know the production mm. goes down, uh, these types of, of measurements. Weight, under, underweight. Exactly. And then, uh, but if you, as an inspector, you would go in, you would look at, for example, for the birds, you would, you would see how many birds are dust bathing. You know, how many birds overall, is it 50%? Is it less than that? Uh, and that gives you, if you, if you know the species and you know, then you, you would know, you can look at them and then say, mm, you know, they are all piled together in that spot. There's something not right. Or if there's a high activity because they are, you know, running around or flying around and uh, you say, mm, you know, they are, they are stressed. <laughs> they seem to be stressed. Yeah. But obviously, that can be that could be um, measured more more objectively by saying so many percentage of the birds are walking, so many percentages are perching, so many are resting at night, so many, um, and that that gives uh, gives is some a measure you can take. You can take a you know a video analysis as we do, you know, just a photo, and then just count them and say, look, there are so many who are now perching, there are so many who are now uh, sunbathing, and that gives you an idea of how healthy that flock is in sense of behavior. So this type this type of measures exist, and and these are the ones that you can put in legislation. So you could say, for example. Uh, the, the the farmer has to design a an enclosure where these percentages happen you know so many animals are mm -hmm. resting so many animals are and obviously that's an average so but at any one point somebody comes in and checks that should be roughly the percentages you see if it's one time not quite right okay you say all right i come again uh, and check again and then if it's okay then and that was an outlier so these are these are type of, of rough measures that that you can do. But these the, th the point is these percentages they have to come from somewhere, and that's what we are trying to establish. So what is the percentage of flock that should be seen perching when an inspector comes and looks? Mm. And getting those numbers is really difficult. <laughs> yes, especially since my understanding of chickens is their perching behavior happens at night. So during the day, they... I think at night is called roosting. Oh, they're roosting. Okay. <laughs> so they're, so perching is different from roosting. That's what I understood. Yeah. I'm not an expert. <laughs> and, and then I'm thinking of another welfare consideration. And again, it's you have to look both at what is present and what is absent. So 
for my horses, I close the, the gate to the, the fields mid-morning. So I don't want the horses out on the grass. You know, what I have learned is the, the sugar levels go up in the grass after 10 a.m. They're, they're really beginning to peak as the sun goes higher and higher. And so I don't let the horses out on grass during the day uh, because I don't want the health consequences that could happen if they were on grass, had access to grass 24-7. If I ask my horses, just like with some people, you say, well, would you like to have open access to the refrigerator 24-7? It sits right, it's that, it's the marshmallow test again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the gate is closed to prevent a health consequence, laminitis. So the gate is closed. So we see an absence of laminitis, knock on wood when I say that, but I don't see the presence of the horses out on grass in the middle of the day. When I drive around the countryside, I might see horses who are out grazing in the middle of the day who are looking very, very contented. And, and someone might say, well, you see those horses who are out during the day have a greater quality of life because they're out grazing in the middle of the day. Yeah, that, that's another of the difficulties that some of, same for us, right? So the, 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 the decisions that if you would ask the horses now, they would want to go out on the grass. That would be their preference. But yeah. uh, we have to make certain decisions um, against their preference for their overall benefit. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Because once again, we're saying we know better. We know better. <laughs> And, and, yes. and if, if you got laminitis, you would not like it. And so therefore. Right, right. No. There was a, I came across, I think today I read about two, two, or two studies or designs that, that looked very interesting, but I haven't looked at the original paper. So I would have to look at it in more detail. But I think I like the concept about, you know, what you're what, looking at it more like a trainer. If you would choose, do a choice test, like when, when we are evaluating our own training, you know, how it's running. So look, looking at loopy training. So we want clean loops and uh, we want the, you know, our horse to be ready right after, you know, we delivered the treat and they're right yeah. there and then you want to continue and there's no hesitation. There is, uh, they're, they're, they're eager to, con to continue. And if you use that concept or the, you know, or the opposite saying that there is a, there is a hesitation, there is probably some sort of delay or avoidance. And if you look at the poison cube concept, there is, you know, they're wandering off trying to avoid the cube presented again. So you have these two, the, the, the yeah, the positive reinforcement contingency and, and, and the avoidance contingency. And you could use that to assess a certain housing component, for example. And uh, I like that concept a lot, but I don't know if they implemented it this way, but there is one study, they looked at rats or mice, and you know, they have, they used to have very barren environments, like laboratory mice, now they have to provide enrichment, it's in the legislation. And they, the experimenters wanted to know what type of enrichment they should provide. So not only just throwing something in, but they wanted to know, you know, what, what the mice would like. 
And they did first a normal preference test. And then they wanted to know how much the animal liked one more than the other. And they set up a corridor and then mouse had to, you know, walk from, through that corridor to reach the other cage with the enrichment item. And they would first let them know what is there so they could explore it. And then they would run the, the experiment whereas so the, the, the mouse knew uh, we have that a toilet roll uh, put in, your, in, in, in that cage. We're going to release you. And then they measured the speed that the mouse ran to the enrichment item. And they compared that to other enrichment items and see if that, whether there was a difference. So, you know, the more they ran, the more eager the mouse was to play with the toy. So um, I thought, that's an interesting concept. I like that. That, yeah. that makes sense. Mm. And the same uh, with avoidance. So there was another one with um, broilers and that relates to transport. And I think they made it too complex. They should have done it easier. But the idea was they trained the broilers to go into a, a crate and they got lots of reinforcement there. So they were, they got treats. Well, I think it was just treats. So uh, they would walk in, on their own on, into the transport box and get fed. So until they went on their own. And then they simulated transport. So they closed the door, <laughs> you know, shook it a little bit and also made it hot, mm. 40 degrees. And, and then mm. they measured, uh, they took measurements, of course, before how quickly they walked onto the, into the box. And then they measured it again and they still went, but they, they were much more hesitant, you know, in going in. Mm. Okay. So this type of thing, this, I'm very intrigued. So I'm, I'm going to read the, the papers in more detail because that makes sense from our training you know, um, yes. perspective. Yes. That you measure the, mm -hmm. the eagerness versus the hesitation. Where's the hesitation? Where's the avoidance? Um, and, and just look at it mm -hmm. that way. Look at approach and avoidance. That's all you need to measure. And the hesitation, the, the, the lag time before they re-engage. To me, that, that would make a lot of sense. And are those mm -hmm. studies any different from the ones that you talked about earlier, where the animal had to exert greater effort? Yes, they don't have, there was no greater effort. Well, but... They running, measured speed. But, right, but running, running faster to get to an enrichment item or lifting a heavier door... Are those, yeah, no, but they, they could reach they could reach the, the enclosure whether they walked slowly or faster, they would still get there. But they there could... is no obstacle. The other the other the pref the, the strength of preference studies they put an obstacle. Okay. So and, and how much effort does the animal put to remove the obstacle? Or like the cows, they would say, you know, do the cows want to go grazing? And then they, they changed the, the the distance from the barn to the grazing area. So how much would a cow walk in order to get from the barn to the grazing? Depends upon how sore his feet are, her feet are. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. <laughs> that was the critical point about that stuff. But um, uh, so there is, there's a variation in, in the level of the cost, you know, yeah. how much do they pay? But here they don't. It's the same distance for both. Same distance, same effort. So they, um, it was two, two experiments. The first one was where they, they established, um, based on time budget, what type of toy the mouse would prefer playing with. So the inference is 
you know, more time played with, they like it more. Less time played, they like it a little bit less. And um, they did that first. And then in the second experiment, they would then use the most liked and the least liked toy to compare how fast they would run along the corridor to reach the play area to play with that item. So the inference is the, the faster they go, the more reinforcing that particular enrichment item was. I can see that one being relevant to our horses, just in terms of assessing, does my horse really enjoy this activity or not? Exactly. Yeah, and that's how we assess our training, no? When, yeah. Uh, like when Blondie, when she would go for a smoke, you know, and I know that my training was not very reinforcing. Meaning for people who aren't familiar, meaning that she would go over to the fence and crib. Yes, that, that clearly whatever you were doing was, because um, that's avoidance behavior. Yeah. And in terms of people listening to this are not necessarily working in the field of animal welfare, but we are all making welfare choices about our animals and how do we assess? Because, you know, I know from all the teaching that I, that I do is that people do have very subjective opinions about how their horses are feeling. You know, you'll see somebody say, oh, my horse is so happy. And you look at him and you think, oh, if that's his happy face, I sure don't want to see his grumpy face. He does not look happy to me, and these conditions do not are not conducive to good horse welfare. But that's not how the person perceives. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And somebody listening to this might be horrified that that I closed the pasture gates after ten a.m. and and the horses aren't out on grass during the day. They might listen to that and just think, what a, what a terrible thing. It goes back to what you were talking about. In the first part is it's so much our personal ethics, our learning history, our exposure to things. If you've never had seen a horse with laminitis, you may you might be perfectly comfortable letting your horses out on grass 24-7 and so on. So where does all of this take you and what where is your thinking heading and how does this relate back to what we do with our horses? Uh, how does it relate back? Uh, I don't know, because I'd say it's the other way around, because basically what I do with my horses, I'm now trying to take into the into the work. So, Dominique, you were asking earlier, you know, what, what others are, are thinking. I think my enthusiasm about it somehow has has made an effect because there is currently a call out. So we have, we have, we, um, my organization has a call for tender out um, for welfare scientists to design the, the roadmap for future risk assessments in animal welfare and exploring new ways of looking, looking at assessing welfare. And this is really, yeah, a roadmap basically. Mm. And, um, I've managed to, to put the idea of, of behavior analysis in there. So the team who's applying actually has to include in the team one, one behavior analyst. No. So mm. the difficulty, in that, so that's great. You know, yes. this is really, a, this is sort of a, 
what you bring the two sciences together that's actually you know the fantastic the difficulty is that these two fields do not talk to each other yet so <laughs> those would normally i mean the big bulk of the work is is uh, animal welfare scientists you know big 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 bulk and then there's just a small amount basically the where a wealth, uh, behavior analyst um, can help in the design of those, you know, of those studies. But if the welfare scientists are not aware that this field even exists, and Europe is worse than the US. I mean, the US behavior, behaviorism is much more known, even though it's little, but it's still a lot more than in Europe. So they don't even know that this exists. <laughs> So I was very specific in writing the full name, you know, applied or experimental behavior analyst, because if you just say behavior analyst, it could be anything else, you know, any applied animal behavior is actually applied ethology. Okay. So it sounds the same, right? The journal right. of applied animal behavior sounds the same as applied behavior analysis. Well, actually, is it applied behavior, animal behavior? No, I think it doesn't have the analysis in it. But it sounds the same. But one is yes. ethology and the other one is behaviorism. So it's... Yeah. So I put it there, but they, they may not actually know what is asked because they are not aware of, mm. of the science in, in that field. So any behavior analyst, analyst listening, and if it's not, you know, if it's before August... Before the end of July, this 2022, um, search for you know institutions that uh, in Europe that do animal welfare and knock their door and say, look, I want to work with you. I'm actually a behavior analyst, and I can be the person that is on you know specified in these technical um, requirements and the specifications, and I can help you with that. Because if behavior analysts are not reaching out, the Welfare scientists are not aware. They wouldn't even know where to look for. No, they're not going to so, find you. No. Yeah. So you, you really do have to knock on their door. So, I, yeah. so can you, because I think this really is important. So can you describe a little more fully what is being asked for? What has been tendered out? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a call for a one-year project that... Um, Part of it is to describe. So they produce a report. It's not. It's not a. It's not an experiment. It's a. It's a report um, that contains a description of current uh, activities. So um, who's doing what in in the field of animal welfare? Uh, what projects there are? What uh, platforms? What um, yeah activities as such? What are the methodologies used at the moment? And, but then also to describe the weaknesses of what's used at the moment, what's missing, and to suggest additional fields of collaboration. So what other fields of science, platforms, um, organizations, can we tap into to improve the methodology? Because we know the methodology is not great. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the call. And, um, it has a, a big budget. It's, it's half a million euro. And the team should be a minimum of, of seven experts and uh, can be more, of course. And usually these are consortia. So you'd have a university work, you know, several universities working together or 
So it could be, and actually the behavior an analysis part is rather small. So that could also be a subcontractor and subcontractors can also be from outside the EU. So since American listeners, behavior analysts uh, interested in animal behavior, uh, you could be a subcontractor, even though you're a US institution, university, uh, or Canadian, that's, that's also possible if they work together. If the main tenant is, um, is a European university, then that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, so very exciting, very important. Very, very really important because if, if, this, if we can you know, get a good offer that actually gets you know, the contract, I mean, yeah, we can really make a dent. I mean, we can change something. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and the ripple effects, both for animals in food production and then by extension, personal horses, et cetera, the ripple effects are quite huge. So if somebody were interested, where should they go? Yeah, that's really not so easy. So there is, there is obviously an official link where all the procurements are uh, published, but it's not actually that user-friendly. So we can put the link in the notes and um, there, is a, there, there is a communication on, on the EFSA website. So European Food Safety Agency, if you look for European Food Safety Agency and there you search for animal welfare, then you see the activities and if you search for, there would be an announcement out probably at the moment because the call is new. If not, look for call, call for tender. You could find it um, because your fish, where, where it's actually published, it's, <laughs> it's sort of because the universities know where to look. You know, they have yes. a person who's checking all the, the procurement yeah. calls, etc. Yeah. So they, they just go there and they search what, what they need. But just Googling for it, you wouldn't find it. Uh, but all the documents are, are there and there's a, spe there's a specific link. So, and if you, you know, if you wanted to, to if you say, uh, who is working on animal welfare, you know, in, in Europe there, for example, Wageningen University, they do a lot, Wageningen University, different uni Royal Veterinary College in London, they do a lot, Bristol University, uh, France, ANSYS um, is the organization, they do a lot. So this has been, it's been a fascinating conversation and very fun and very different from what we normally talk about. So, uh, so I'm really, I'm enjoying getting this out. And because of there is a real call to action in this one, we'll get it out sooner rather than later. And then very soon, we'll have another afternoon together where you can tell us more about what you've been doing with Blondie because we're not going to forget mm. the teaser that you started this, uh, yes, no, this conversation <laughs> out with. And, and of course, by then you'll have even more data in terms of what you've been doing. Mm. So very exciting. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thank you immensely. Is there anything? Thanks to you. Is there yeah, anything else that, that uh, <laughs> did, did we leave anything out before we... Ah, you could go on and on. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think I think what would be cool would be at, at, at another point is this this idea about uh, stress. I think that would deserve uh, when when I got my head around it. That would deserve uh, another discussion. I think, but I need okay. a bit more time to figure that one out. <laughs> well, when you are when you are ready to have another one of those, well, let me just sort through some ideas by uh, recording a podcast. Just send up flares and. 
you know where to find us and you know we're eager. Yeah, I think, you know, I really think the stress thing can, everybody should, uh, in a way for me, it's always one of the main purpose of the training is to have a, as much as possible a stress-free training because even if we're using positive reinforcement or trying not to use punishment, but stress can still yeah. be there. You know, we've, we've talked about extinction many times and stress, confusion. So I think stress is really very relevant. If I don't know anybody. how to pass the marshmallow test and those treats are right in front of me in your pocket, and I don't, I don't know how to manage the, I don't understand the training yet, but I can see those treats in your pocket. And why aren't you giving them to me? There's stress. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, I, I, you, we, because you were talking about a little stress is very healthy. You know, in a way, when you're, when you're exercising, for example, you're putting a stress on your muscle, but that's, you know, it's a small stress. And if you don't overdo it, it's a small stress. And that's, how your, um, your muscle will develop. So it's good. And there are many, many examples. There's a word for that, you know, medical word, I suppose, for that small stress, which is good. But um, we all know that a lot of stress is not good for, for the body. So I think it's a big subject stress so it would be great yeah yeah great we're at a decision a... point here because because if we go further then then we'll talk for another two hours probably but <laughs> i know i know but we should dedicate no, especially because the link i mean it does link to the previous conversation about uh, you know blondie's uh, crib biting behavior that is usually attributed to to, to stress and uh, in one of the welfare books i read they basically said that whenever there is stereotypic behavior, there's always poor welfare. And I went like, hang on, I don't agree with that. I totally disagree. So mm. it's easy. It, I think it's just one of those joker cards that, that are pulled out too quickly. Mm. I mean, not I what you were saying, of course, we want stress-free training or environment overall, that there's no, no, no question, but the stress card is pulled out too, too frequently to explain, to oh, explain yeah. behavior. And, and sometimes you have to look a little bit closer and, and yeah. Well, there's, there's the explanation too of why the behavior happened in the beginning and why is the behavior happening five years later? That may not be the same thing. You know, there may have been something in the environment five years ago that is no longer there and the behavior is still happening. Yes, so. and the... the there's, it's it's never a simple black and white answer, is it? No, 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 no. Of course, and the, as I said, the stress is, is difficult because it's uh, it's as it, the definition as such, and all these definitions are anyway. That's that's another huge topic. It's about language, you know, the 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 construct of stress, the construct of emotion, the construct of anything we put is 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 it is because we have language. And in order to be able to talk to each other, we have all these constructs because otherwise life would be terribly complicated. If we would define with every sentence I say, I would have to define, you know, what I mean with that word, yeah. we'd never get anything done. You know, it would be like the ends. Yes. <laughs> so, 
you know, it takes a long time to, you know, <laughs> to, to discuss right. something in Entish. So yeah. uh, you cannot always, always, so in a, in, a, in a scientific article, or actually in any, let's say in a, in a discussion where you, you need to define a word in order to be able to talk about it, you know, in this, to, to be sure that you talk about the same thing, then you, you agree on something and you can talk about it. So how do you define stress, for example, you would use that. But if it's not defined and you just use it in your, in your colloquial definition that you, are, that you have adopted for yourself as the definition of stress or the definition of happiness or the definition of the color red, it may not be the same what the other person has right. adopted as their definition of stress, happiness or the color red. And you may not realize that you're talking about two different constructs. So if you're talking to somebody who is by training an ethologist and they are talking about stress, they may not realize that you, an engineer, are talking about a different a physical, concept. Physical yeah, yeah. concept from physics. Yeah. You know, even, even that word, ethology, I don't know about where you are, Michaela, but I know that in France, a lot of people use it to describe negative reinforcement training. They call it ethology. Uh, yeah. There's like a trend. Yeah. It's doing no, something. they use it for positive reinforcement training in Italy. Oh, well, I, I know that in, in um, well, in, um, in, in France, I know a lot of people who use it, you know, to do parallel type of training. They call mm -hmm. it ethology. It has nothing to do with the real ethology science. But the other day I, I was doing some liberty work with my horses and a new person came in the barn. She was visiting. She said, oh, what do you do with your horses? You do ethology? I was like, no, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that in a while. But I remember when I, you know, when I was um, traveling a lot in the horse world and this word ethology, I mean, people used it in all kinds of ways that was so far from the actual science of ethology. It was just a way of training, really, but it was inaccurate. Maybe the, the assumption should be that on a fairly frequent basis, you should stop and define mm -hmm. all the common terms that you are using. And certainly at the start of a new project or uh, working with a new population, you should define the terms that you are using because surprise, surprise, what you mean by ethology may not be even in the same ballpark as what somebody else is intending when they use that term. That reminds me of another addition to this uh, self-control experiment with yeah. the marshmallows, pretzels, etc. Because the aspect of language and framing was also assessed. So they were testing two different instructions given to the children. So in one instruction, they were told uh, something that had to do with eating the pretzel. You know, you know, pretzels are, they're tasty and they are, you know, how they were prepared, etc. And then they put the pretzels in front of the child and tell them to wait 15 minutes. <laughs> And in the other one, they were told uh, something different. Like they were, I think they were told to think about fun, fun things they did with their mom. Also, I don't know. And those kids, the latter one, were were more able to resist the temptation and could wait for 
for the bigger reinforcer. So language for us, I mean, this there, there's so much in there. I mean, how mm. you set up, and probably if you translate that to the to the to the animal to the test with the animals, there would be so much in there that we'd need to consider. You know how. When was the last time the animal ate? When was the, how deprived are they? You know, have they eaten? Have they, did they drink? When was the last time they exercised? Were they, you know, are they, what time of day? Are they tired? What are they normally doing during that time of day? All these type of questions. And I'm not sure if these, these experimental setups have always considered this, these, mm. these things. Yeah. I guess the, the biggest construct, the biggest word in the horse world is respect. I think that's such a big construct. <laughs> Means so many different things to different horse people. Yeah, there you definitely yeah. need a definition. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in parenthood too, respect. Yeah. Big word. <laughs> it's definitely defining. Yeah, and the whole concept of frames and what frame of reference are you in very much determines how you how you define how you hear if you even hear certain words so that and then that raises the whole question and it sounds as though you're doing a good job of it of how do you navigate through a system that is using that that come that is in a very different frame of reference so there you are coming from the background that you have going into a field where you are the new kid on the block and yeah. you have to navigate through uh, all of these interactions with people who have been studying animal welfare, probably some of them for decades, and who have an expertise. Well, it's, pretty, it's a pretty young field, so not more than 40 years. <laughs> so they're all pretty new kids on the block, if you want. But yes, of course, yeah. 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 So yep. I mean I know I know that there's a lot that I don't know. So obviously that I, I listen and I, I mean in the beginning the, the the names for the measures I didn't know. You know they use the term the terminology that is completely new to me. I mean what animal based measure welfare consequences? I say what are those? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, that took me a while to understand. And and of course I mean it's not that ethology is not is not useful. It's very useful. It's very, very useful. Yes. Um, a lot of it is what we need. I'm just thinking that there are some holes in there that it's always like that. If you know, you can never be an expert in everything. So you, you identify a certain field where you work, you gain experience, and that's where your expertise is. And there is a gray area that you don't, don't really know. You have not explored yet. So you know that it exists. There's a map there. You know there's something, but I'm not an expert. Then you should get an expert, find out who is an expert in that field and talk to this person, you know, yes. um, can you explain this to me? Can we solve that puzzle together? And since they, I, I had a feeling since, since this field is not aware that there is actually an expertise that could explain these type of things, they're trying to figure it out themselves. So they, they know about operant conditioning, you know, they, they know about Skinner, they are, there has been, it's just that it's sort of, it's, it's like a, a stepping stone in the past, as if it was no longer mm. existing. We mm -hmm. are always beyond Skinner. You know, it's always, there used to be this thing, you know, that they used to do operant, and now we are cognitive, and it's, it's mm. we're no longer doing that, except for a choice test that is still operant, but for the rest, we're all cognitive. So we forget about it, and it's no longer there. Yeah. 
so so they try to solve it themselves. So they say, okay, um, we know there is something like operant conditioning. We know we can train the animal to to do a choice test to give us the answer and we, and to lift you know the heavy heavy doors. So they do it, but they do it poorly because they are not experts. Yes. But if they only knew, you know, if they were aware that there are actually people who can help you designing the experiments, you are still the ethologist, you are still the expert in, in, in animal, you know, behavior and, 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 and the veterinarians are still the ones in animal health, the, the, the other aspect that you need in all of this. But this, this small design uh, and interpretation of the results. So this is your experimental design. These are the results. How are you looking at the results? How are, what, what are you concluding? from those results. I mean, take somebody who has experience and I mean, yeah, yeah. there's tons of studies on, on pigeons and rats and, and other animals and yeah, use that. And, and you know, in, 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 uh, in behavior analysis, they are actually using the animals to infer to humans. We don't even have to go that far. We talk about animals. We stay in the same, you know, field, same animals. Yeah. So we don't have to infer to what human, humans are doing you know just stay right there with the pigeons and <laughs> with the rats but that that really is such a important statement of find the expert you know when there's a hole go find the the person who has expertise in that hole susan friedman talks about uh you know she always wants at dinner to sit next to the best tennis player in the room um you know the person who has the greatest expertise that's the person that she wants to pick out and that makes so much sense and it really does allow you to navigate in a world where there are others who have been at it longer who have tremendous expertise in a given field but here are the gray areas let's identify them and let's find out where because let's find out who's been studying that type of work and yeah. go draw on what they know. And that goes back always to the way to expand a field is not from within, but from uh, drawing on expertise that sits outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I wonder what in the history of applied behavior analysis, what happened that it kind of went out of a trend, you know, that it's that thing... There's so much value there, you know, and it makes so much sense when you, you're in contact with it. Why is it that buried science that nobody... I think it has a lot to do with language. Yes. It has a lot to do with language. How do you mean? Well, I think one thing probably that people could not digest is the um, notion of there's no willpower, you know, that the environment... I mean, putting it that way, that the environment controls our behavior, if you say it so bluntly, mm. I mean, people will not accept it because I say, I am controlling my behavior. Mm -hmm. But who is I? <laughs> no, there's no I. I am only because of the environment I live in. Mm. But that's very difficult, especially, I mean, consider where we come from, all the religion and even before religion, all, all of that. And then all of a sudden you come and say like, you know, the environment controls my behavior. That is impossible to digest. And in the field of, of science, they went into, well, we know the problem with, with uh, reinforcement and punishment, positive reinforcement, and negative reinforcement. That one we know it's obvious, very, very difficult. But also the other 
I mean, I'm trying to read these papers, but I'm really struggling to understand what, <laughs> with all these yes. schedules. And <laughs> it's very, very hard to read, very, very hard to read. But I think, I think the most critical part was this, this notion of, which I like so much, that the environment has such an, such an influence and that we are responding to environment versus that sort of there's something inside of me that decides that people, I don't think people can digest that. But that's my interpretation. I don't know. Yeah. And whether you get to that point or not, I think the language is just trips us up in part because we use the same language, punishment and punishment. Yeah. So that trips us up. The language, the use of language, the way in which the studies are talked about, I just think people get lost. And then they don't want to make the effort. I think there's one other aspect. Uh, I think there's also that, and probably we are not the right people to to, to talk about that. But anyway, no. I make my I make my guesses because none of us are behavior analysts, right? But I make my my guess is that because what I I read uh, in in it now, you know, going through these these welfare and ethology books, when they talk about behaviorism, is always that they seem to think that. It's there's no emotion discussed. So as if right. animals, as we talk about animals in those books, had no had no emotions, or we have no emotions. Emotions are not relevant, and it's all mechanistic. You know, it's all more like instincts. You know, there is this cue, and then I have to behave this way, and then there's that cue, I have to behave that way. And the the notion of that there's a decision process internally is much more close to what we experience because we experience these decisions every, every all the time you know should i get out of bed now or I wait another 10 minutes should i have a coffee or should i go straight to work should i do this should i do that there are these choices all the time and there's an internal what we experience as an internal decision process and if there's a science that describes exactly that you feel much closer to than a science that tells you the environment controls what you're doing. <laughs> but I think uh, he said that he recognized emotions existed. He was just saying at the time. Yes, but he's misunderstood. That has been misunderstood. They, they, yeah. he, emotion is fully part of it. And also, I think I read also somewhere that it, it was, uh, that was really striking, actually, uh, sort of very, very negative. You know that it's a negative world, very controlled, and and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. said that's very odd because if you look at his, you know, I read World and Two and this Utopia, and and thinking about uh, the, the the programmed instruction with the with the you know these early computers and and errorless learning and all those type of things and positive reinforcement, I said, where on earth is that negative? Mm. Yeah. You know, I hope the animal training, we bring it kind of back in the forefront more because I don't know, somehow it, I find that when, when you have all these different science that seem to have a high profile and applied behavior analysis does it. And I hate that. Yeah, I agree. You know, I want it to be more known and more out there, more upfront. So I'm sure they love to hear that. So. <laughs> We support you. We support you. Yes. yes. We want it out. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll keep talking to behavior analysts and, and people will go, we'll start to say, huh, interesting field. Let me go, let me go find out more about this and 
we'll get there. Mm. And in the meantime, hopefully some of the behavior analysts who are listening to this podcast will uh, answer the call to action and connect with some of the... Mingle with animal welfare teams in Europe. <laughs> yes, that's right. Knock that's doors right. and say, are you applying to that call? I could help you. Yes, very exciting. And we can't wait to he have you back to talk to us about Blondie. Yeah. I'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll try and uh, be good with our delayed reward of hearing what you have to say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm very anxious. I looked at her, you know, when I put her in, I was observing her like, oh, is she going to, is she going don't to, make 45 the delay, minutes, all good. Don't make the delay too long. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm, I, I, I'm tempted to ask what you've been doing, but I won't, <laughs> because then we'll be here for another hour. No, because I really want to spend, oh yeah, we really want to spend good quality time on this. Yeah. Well, let's give let's give it some uh, maturation also, and uh, and see if I go back to her tomorrow and she's you know cribbing on another surface. Then <laughs> you know I don't want to talk about it for the next three months. <laughs> so depending on uh, how successful this was, um, at least for a couple of weeks, then uh, I'm more than happy to talk about it. Neat. Very good. Well, we will hope that it is very successful, and we will be talking with you again very soon and in the meantime either way it's always successful because i had already a good trial so um yes i learned to appreciate already that i mean um it's already an, it's another piece to the puzzle so that's right all right so on that note i won't ask anything more because it's getting later and later for you and we will say thank you immensely and uh wish you a very good night Thanks to you. Yep. Bye. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. You'll find links to the Call for Tender, as well as all the other references Michaela has cited in both episodes of this podcast in the show notes at equiosity.com. The Call to Tender really is an incredible opportunity. Even if this isn't your area of expertise, if you know people who might be interested, do please share the podcast and the links to this information. You never know who is going to hear this and be in a position to help. So until next time, enjoy your training and have fun with your horses.